Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Sleepwalkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions. Hi, I'm Oz Veloshin. And I'm Kara Price. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Sleepwalkers. Well, Kara, it's very good to be back sitting opposite you. It is good to be back, Oz. I just want to apologize to our listeners. We don't have an algorithm that's going to create season two, so things have taken a little longer. Yes, unfortunately, or fortunately, AI can't do everything yet. But we are hard at work on season two of Sleepwalkers, and we're focusing on stories that really contextualize the implications of AI, what it's doing, what the future is, and how it's affecting us. You know, we had such a good time in season one of Sleepwalkers, wrapping our heads around the meaning of artificial intelligence. It becomes basically a principle of statistics, prediction, uh, how we're using data to inform our decisions, and how that's becoming ingrained in products and services and everything we do, really. It's true. The Pandora's box of AI has been opened, but we still have the black box problem. That is true. Explainable AI. We can't tell what neural networks are doing yet, but people are working on it. And that's a story we're going to be covering closely in season two. But in this bonus episode of Sleepwalkers, we're going to take a look back at some of the most poignant stories and interesting applications of AI that we talked about in the first season. And later in this episode, I'm going to give you a preview of a fascinating new company that's using AI to predict very specific consumer taste, as in... (laughs) Yum, yum. ...preferences, not like taste in clothing. Before we get there, though, Oz, when you look back at season one, what stands out to you the most? One of the things that stands out to me most is the story you did about Liabird. Thank you. Uh, No, but seriously, um, the way they use an algorithm to create a deep fake of your voice. But in that particular piece, the questions it raised about mortality and would you want to hear your father's voice beyond the grave uh, has stuck with me and I thought it was one of the most powerful moments in the whole podcast. Yeah, so Jose Sotelo, 
one of the founders of Liarbird, had me sit down at a microphone for an hour and just speak, which was a personal dream of mine. <laughs> and then using that... Without me interrupting. <laughs> using that voice data, Liarbird's algorithms created a version of my voice that could turn any written text into something that sounded like me. But Jose actually explains it better. So can you uh, hit the clip? <laughs> I'm not an AI scientist, but we do have the sophistication to roll tape. I know it might sound a bit like magic, but uh, in reality, the way that uh, our algorithms work is basically they are just uh, pattern matching algorithms. And so it's trying to figure out uh, how to identify the patterns in your voice by comparing it against thousands of other voices, actually tens of thousands of other voices, and trying to figure out what is it that makes your voice unique. Once Jose's algorithms identified what was unique about my voice, obviously everything, they had the building blocks they needed to make a fake. Then we sent Jose a set of sentences we wanted Robot Kara to say, and he used another set of algorithms to turn the text into what we heard. The way they do this is they use what's called a generative adversarial network, a GAN, which is a system where one neural net tries to trick another one a thousand times per second. So each time the second network detects a fake, the first one tries again. It basically learns from its mistakes, and once it tricks its adversary, it's ready to show its results. In our case, Lyrebird pits my fake voice against my real voice until it sounds like this. Sup, dog. It's Kara. Kara, one of the reasons why this story has stuck with me is because it feels like we're just at the beginning of tapping the potential and the potential for harm of deepfakes. 2019 may be remembered as the year of the first significant deepfake crime. An employee at a UK-based energy firm believed he was on the phone to his boss and followed instructions to transfer £200,000 to a scammer's bank account. That certainly won't be the last deepfake fraud we hear of, and it raises questions about responsibility and accountability. Who's liable in a case like this? Facebook has actually gone so far as to create a deepfake detection challenge to get the best minds thinking about deepfakes and how we might solve the problem. And they're offering like a million dollar prize, Huge right? Huge prize, which is like a, a dollar to them. Um, but it also shows how important the issue is. Exa- especially when a company like Facebook gets behind it. Um, there's another side to deepfake technology that actually highlights this dichotomy in technology right now, which is that it can be used for menacing purposes, but also really powerful and beautiful applications. Jose goes on to talk about how Lyrebird can be used with ALS patients and give them the ability to speak when they've lost all ability to speak. Well, it could give them the opportunity to speak in a version of their voice to their children again, which is quite profound. One area where I think technology is a powerhouse for change is in medicine. Technologists and doctors alike are looking at AI to predict, treat, and diagnose. You know, everything from depression to cancer, and that's a very wide spectrum. And it reminds me of one of my favorite interviews that you did, which was your interview with Siddhartha Mukherjee. I was just so fascinated by this article he'd written for The New Yorker called AI versus MD, which laid out all of the kind of benefits and potential applications of using AI in medicine, including some of the downside, such as the black box problem of AI that you mentioned, not knowing why an algorithm has made a recommendation. And also another problem, which is that if we rely too much on technology, it can erode human skills. There is a fear that AI could move us into a very black and white way of thinking. The computer says you have cancer, or the computer says you need to have your liver removed. Siddhartha, who is one of the world's foremost oncologists and a Pulitzer Prize winning author, provided a different perspective. There is something very fundamental about 
the human brain, a scientist's brain, a doctor's brain, an artist's brain that asks questions in a fundamentally different manner. The why question, why did this happen in this person in this time? Why does the melanoma appear in the first place? What is the molecular basis of that appearance? The most interesting mysteries of medicine remain mysteries that have to do with the why. Once we give up some of the diagnostic pattern recognition material to machines, it will be time to play. It'll be the time to play in the arena of human therapeutics, human biology, the complexity of the human interaction, the art of medicine. My hope is that medicine in being more playful will become more compassionate, more able to take into account individuals and their individual destinies rather than bucketing people in big categories. It means having more time to spend with humans. You know, we are so constrained by time that even compassion gets three minutes. We won't become more robotic, we'll become less robotic as the robots enter our realm. Siddhartha's point is that these tools could make doctors more efficient so that they can provide better care. It sort of takes the grunt work out of medicine and puts the patient care work back in the doctor's hands. This idea that technology could actually allow us to be more human, make us more empathetic, is fascinating. And it also raises the questions about new types of skills that may need to be developed in an age of AI. Yeah, and Regina Barzilay from MIT spoke a lot about this, how doctors have to now equip themselves with new ways of translating data to patients. We still do not communicate it to the patient because I think um, now there is a work to be done, not on computer science or AI part, but really on the clinical side. What is the best way to communicate it to the patient and what is... um, you know, the path that you're going to give them, it is not just enough to say, you know, you're high risk. You need to propose some suggestion and solution. So currently the clinical staff is thinking and looking at the ways of effective, you know, clinical engagement with the patient. You know, speaking of data, you all know Harari was another person who made you and me think about humans as reducible to data. I think he's mostly known as a historian and for his book, Sapiens. But you spoke with him about the data we produce as humans and how that influences our relationship with technology. That's right, which is the topic of his book, Homo Deus. And he has this phrase, dataism, to describe how we've kind of uh, come to worship uh, the data we create and our own technological creations. So what happens when, based on all of our past behavior, AI starts to know us better than we know ourselves? Here's a clip from Yuval talking about exactly that. When we talk about AI, we tend to greatly exaggerate the potential abilities. But at the same time, we also tend to exaggerate the abilities of humans. People say that AI is not going to take over our lives because it's very imperfect and it won't be able to know us perfectly. But What people forget is that humans often have a very poor understanding of themselves, of their desires, of their emotions, of their mental states. For AI to take over your life, it doesn't need to know you perfectly. It just needs to know you better than you know yourself. And that's not very difficult because we often don't know the most important things about ourselves. So, but, but let's say you could turn back the clock to being 15. Would you have wanted to live in a world where there were sufficiently good sensors to monitor your 
eyes, your eye movement, your breathing, you know, while you're going about your daily life, and then to interpret that and say to you, Yuval, more likely than not, you're gay? That's a very good question, which will become a very practical question in, in, in a few years. And the way that I grew up and developed, it would have been a very bad idea. I wouldn't like to receive this kind of insight from, from a machine. I'm not sure how I would have dealt with it when I was 15, you know, in Israel in the 1980s. And maybe partly it was, you know, a defense mechanism. In the future, too, it, it depends where you live. Brunei has instituted a death penalty for gay people, at least for people engaged in homosexual sex. So if I'm a teenager in Brunei, I don't want to be told by the computer that I'm gay because the computer will then be able to tell that to the police and to the authorities as well. So, Kara, the apps we use, the products we buy, the number of steps we take, the delivery I ordered last night, that all becomes data. And that data can feed into neural networks to create statistical models of us and what we might do next, sometimes in order to diagnose a medical condition and other times to sell us a product. Here's Yuval again. Looking to the future, say 10, 20 years, the danger is, if I still don't know that I'm gay, but the government and Coca-Cola and, and Amazon and Google, they already know it. I'm at a huge disadvantage. So it could be something as frightening as the secret police coming and taking me to a concentration camp. But it could also be something like Coca-Cola knowing that I'm gay, they want to sell me a new drink and they choose the advertisement with the shirtless guy and not the advertisement with the girl in the bikini. And next day morning, I go and I buy this soft drink and I don't even know why. And they have this huge advantage over me and can manipulate me in all kinds of ways. Well, Oz, you've all brought up soda. I was not allowed to drink soda as a child. My parents tricked me into thinking that seltzer was soda. Smart. I later found out that soda is soda and seltzer is water. (laughs) And somehow the seltzer of it all is the perfect segue because AI is not only being used to sell a product, it's also being used to create products like seltzer in the R&D, research and development phase. And for this bonus episode, Julian, remember Julian? Our, our producer, our I do. Our lovely producer. Yes, thank you, And Julian. I went to meet the company behind the Gastrograph app, which is using consumer preference data to make predictions about new flavors people might like. Think you hate nettle? Think again. That's a stinger. Analytical Flavor Systems, or AFS, is tucked yeah. away down a side street in Chinatown. Oh. Nothing. In a third-story walk-up. It smells nice. It does actually smell And when we were good. there, the office was still waiting for furniture. You know, it had this, we're going to disrupt the industry vibe. We moved in like a month or two ago, but it turns out you can't just buy office furniture. Like We met the founder of the company, Jason Cohen. And we believe that in the future, in order to be competitive, you have to be targeted. That, that there won't be any billion-dollar brands, right, in 10 years. If you don't have an MBA, here's what Jason's talking about. Think about the coffee you drank this morning. Is it third wave? Did you get it from Starbucks or an indie roaster? Food and beverage companies are moving more and more towards niche markets. The problem is that they have very old school ways of developing new products. But AFS is offering another way to reach those customers. And that's by allowing companies to formulate more specific products using AI. Here's Jason again. 
usually the way that things are done today is you get some conceptual brief. You might say, we want to develop a new fruit-flavored beverage for uh, Japanese millennial women, right? You would look at what other fruit-flavored beverages are out there. You'd look at your own product lineup and say, well, we already have a lemon flavor. And we're going to send out these briefs and we're going to send these out to these flavor companies. We're going to see what other fruits we can get. And you're going to wind up with very mainstream things. You're going to wind up with peach and mango and strawberry and grapefruit, right? And maybe you'll wind up with something interesting like loquat or yuzu or dragon fruit, right? And then you're going to have your own consumer tasting panel internally, hopefully, uh, and you're going to have them taste it. And they're going to have to like some of those more than your current offering or more than a competitor's. After you've done all of this work, which sometimes costs in the tens of thousands of dollars in order to have the samples developed, have the samples sent to you, recruit the consumers, put the product in front of the consumers, that data is only ever usable once, right? All you get from that is a binary yes, no, 60% of the population liked it more than the competitors. And so what we're doing is entirely different. Jason's team wants to take product development out of the yes-no binary. Instead of just saying Coke or Pepsi, they can calculate which parts of each soft drink people liked and disliked. And then AFS can make entirely new flavors based on what a person kind of liked about Pepsi and kind of liked about Coke. And finally, they can transfer those preferences to entirely different demographics. So what might someone in Mexico want to taste in their cola compared to what a Japanese millennial woman might want to taste in her cola? This is what Jason believes is truly disruptive. Being able to say to a brand, if you want to launch in Mexico, you should tweak your flavors in this way. Because we're actually able to collect this data, develop a data set, and make predictions. So we could take data from, say, white 20 to 30-year-old college-educated males and use that to predict what every other population in the United States is going to perceive in that product. And so we're taking an industry that has never seen predictions of any kind before and finally being able to actually predict things, predict who's going to like it, how much they're going to like it, right, and what we can do to optimize it so that they like it more, we can actually create products that no one would have ever thought of and no one ever would have thought that a segment of the population would have liked. And this is something that we now do with the companies that we work with. We did talk quite a bit about developing a pine-flavored beverage in Japan. When we first showed these results to a company there, they said, Natsudeska, do you mean pineapple? Because it was just so out of the... Yeah, out of the ordinary. The way Jason and his team are able to get such nuanced data is with an app they develop called Gastrograph. Gastrograph looks a lot like the flavor wheels they use in coffee and wine tasting to help people map out what they taste when they try a new product. We think of every flavor, aroma, and texture as a signature. You can have the five basic flavors, bittersweet, salty, sour, umami. And then underneath that, you can have categorical flavors like fruity, earthy, herbaceous, nuts and seeds, roasted. I mentioned that he's a professional taster, right? And then underneath that, you can have subcategorical like citrus or specific like lemon or very specific like Meyer lemon or very, very specific like Meyer lemon zest, right? So all of those signatures exist in some infinite dimensional space. Flavor space. So, Kara, since you're such a seltzer fiend, we demoed Gastrograph and got a feel for the app by doing a seltzer tasting. Yeah, we tasted five seltzers that are already on the market that you'd buy at like 7-Eleven, and we rated different components of them. So if I tasted fruit, I'd rate that from zero to five, and I could add adjectives like strawberry or mango. You know, I'm not into like seltzer 2.0 with like, kumquat flavored sparkling (laughs) seltzer. You know, I like plain 
vintage. <laughs> but AFS's resident chemist, Ryan Ahn, agreed to formulate a seltzer based on just our extremely small data set. Um, it'd probably be a pretty fast process. So we have tons of seltzer data. What we would want to do is um, run through uh, a couple of different flavors to get an idea of the types of things that you like, build a model specifically around that, run an optimization, predict a new flavor that you've never had before, and then have you try it again. So after we did all of that, we went home, we sat on our hands, and then we went back to the office, which actually had a little bit more furniture when we got back there, to see if they actually could create a seltzer that both Julian and I would like. So it was a blind tasting. Here we go. All right, drink one. Oh boy, this pear. <laughs> I don't know why I have think, such a thing against pears these days. Number two, berries, right? Yeah, this is That's delish. Let's see what we got here. I wouldn't know a huckleberry if it hit me in the face, honestly. <laughs> but whatever. Number three. Oh, wow. Honestly, curry. Do you not taste curry? <sighs> like there's spice, it's so interesting. This one is the fourth and final one. Woo! Oh, I love it. I was mm. like hops and now I'm smelling a pear. It just tastes like grass. What are you? Robot. <laughs> We're done. So the first thing you guys should tell us yeah. is which is your favorite? Uh, for me, it was number three, just because I like the complexity of flavor. Three was a beverage. Two, I'm used to, and I, I've probably had before, maybe. Three, I really enjoyed. One, I did not like. I don't like those flavors. Yeah, are we at the reveal? We're almost at the reveal. Well, I just okay. want to clarify, your job as a company is to predict future products that people will enjoy and come back to. Yes, so in that regard, three was a winner. All right. Oh, my God. Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to do one product that was going to be optimal for both of you. And we got it. It was number three. Oh. <laughs> they nailed it. You could say that we got flavor hacked. Up here, this, this blue graph, this is saying that there's a 70% you know, chance that you would give this a six. Did I give it a six? I think I did. I think uh, I you, did. You, did you both gave it a six. Um, so we were pretty confident on this, but we didn't have that level of confidence until we saw this. What I tasted is not something I ever predicted I would have liked, but it's absolutely something I will continue to think about. It was such a unique flavor. And it's actually something I would buy. It's just that I had never tasted something like it before. So when I first tasted it, I was like, this is strange. In the best case scenario, Gastrograph's AI can help companies create foods that satisfy more specific tastes and even bring people more joy. And that's good for business. Instead of making huge bets and trying to market a product to an entire country, AFS has created a way to make more specialized bets and help companies tap into those niches. And this isn't about AI reducing our experiences to data. AI is being used to change how we experience the world. More sleepwalkers after the break. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. So, Kara, I would have been quite nervous to stand in the shoes of Jason and Ryan and the Gastrograph team because I know that you're such a connoisseur of seltzer. How do they do? Connoisseurs. Connoisseurs. They d- they did really well, actually. And I think it's important to mention that they weren't trying to create something they thought I would already like. Like, I love cranberry, right? right. They were trying to create something that I hadn't tasted before and also liked. So it was really difficult. And I think it also shows that there's a bit of reversal in the way that we do things. Companies have always used market research to predict consumer preference, but it's often based on things like focus groups or survey research. What we have now is massive amounts of data being funneled through an algorithm to deliver the perfect product for a very specific type of person. Or specific demographic. Exactly. That's the, or 
yeah, age demographic, socioeconomic, race, they can target it to all these particular categories. And I think this is cool and also a little unsettling. Why unsettling? I think as humans, we like to be in control. You know, I like to think that my preferences are just that, my own preferences. And this sort of upends that notion. You know, using pre-existing data, I can kind of be read. Mm -hmm. They're reading me. And that makes me feel a little less special. I do think it's cool that companies are trying to service niche markets. And I think that's a trend I would definitely get on board with as far as AI being used to make predictions. And the reason this gastrograph piece is interesting is because it's a perfect demonstration that AI is not some thing which is going to happen in the future. It's here with us today. We can literally taste it already. AI is in our lives. It's interpreting our data. It's analyzing our preferences. It's predicting our behaviors. But we're just starting to respond to what that means culturally. And so there's a lot of new technologies and new issues that we're very excited to get our hands dirty with on season two. Absolutely. And one of the important issues we're going to explore is bias in technology. It's easy to think that algorithms are neutral, but the reality is that technology is built by someone and that person's bias can be built into a system. This Princeton professor named Ruha Benjamin has introduced a concept directly related to this called the New Jim Code, which asks us to consider the inequities encoded in algorithms. Well, it's the algorithms and also the data they learn from, right? I mean, AI harnesses the power of processing huge amounts of data about things that have happened in the past in order to predict a future. And so we have to be very careful about what that data contains or we might not like the future it spits out. I think this is particularly relevant in the area of medicine. We see huge, huge promise about harnessing AI for better medical outcomes, but we also need to be very careful about how the data is being used and who has access to it. And how can you prevent your data from being used against you? Well, we have to think about the potential uh, for data to harm, but also to provide comfort and to drive innovation, sometimes extraordinary, very unexpected innovation. Uh, There are two stories I can't wait to dive into in season two. One is about a doctor using AI to record and optimize conversational strategies with very sick patients. What should they say? How? And when? Another is about using natural language processing to enable immersive conversations with holograms of people from history, everyone from astronauts to Holocaust survivors. In other words, using technology to bring history into the present and ensuring we never forget our past. It's wild. So we're obviously looking forward to seeing you in the next season. We have a lot of amazing stories lined up. We'd love to hear from you guys about stories that you want to hear or subjects that you want to hear about. So tweet us at SleepwalkersPod on Twitter, obviously, and on Instagram, we are Sleepwalkers Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. We love your feedback, and we're really looking forward to seeing you for season two very soon. Sleepwalkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions. For the latest AI news, live interviews, and behind-the-scenes footage, find us on Instagram at sleepwalkerspodcast or at sleepwalkerspodcast.com. Sleepwalkers is hosted by me, Oz Voloshin. And co-hosted by me, Carol Price. We're produced by Julian Weller, with help from Jacopo Penzo and Taylor Chicoin. Mixing by Tristan McNeil and Julian Weller. Our story editor is Matthew Riddle. 
Sleepwalkers is executive produced by me, Osvaloshin, and Mangesh Hatikada. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.